everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And this week, we, as many of you who listen every week, are probably not going to be surprised about this, but we have Q the nurse on again. Hey, Q. Hey, hey, hey. Always happy to be back. (laughs) Always, always, always. Yes. And I'm always happy for you to be here because every time we do a show together, it just seems like, you know, we just have really good conversation. It's just so, so good and enjoyable, which is kind of the point for me. Yeah. As long as you continue to think that I'm good company, I will continue to come on, Tina. Please and thank you. Awesome. Well, this week we're going to do a little different of our healthcare colleagues. We're going to be talking about occupational therapists this week. Woot woot. Mm-hmm. Finally, they, they get their time in the light and in the dark. I'm happy to have them. They're sort of unsung heroes, aren't they? I mean, we don't really hear about them a whole lot, but don't no. they do amazing things? They really do. And I had an occupational therapist a while ago on my Everyday Hero show. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they were describing to me their job, they really do a lot of everybody's different jobs. Like they help patients with their pill boxes. They help patients yes. with, you know, eating with those fine motor skills. They help patients with like a lot of things you would think PT does or nurse practitioners does or pharmacist does. Like OTs really, they take care of a lot of in-between lines, the gr- gray areas in healthcare. Um, they so sure they do. really are the unsung heroes. That's a really great way to put it. Well, for sure. So we're going to get into it. But first, we wanted to talk about something that's going on in New Jersey and you're familiar with this because you actually talked about it on your show on the Q the I Nurse sure show, did. right? On your everyday here. Did you do it on your which one did you so, do? So yeah, it on? Q, the the nursing news show. <clears throat> okay. Yes. And it is um, the uh, death with dignity um, bill that's I guess it just passed in New Jersey. New Jersey. Yep. So uh, the reason I chose to do this on the nursing news show is because I am a huge proponent of. Uh, this. Um, Like, I don't know, I feel like sometimes we stumble upon talking about politics and policy, and especially when it comes to healthcare. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is one of the things that I am very pro. I don't know if it's me being in the hospital and seeing patients on, you know, being vented and tubed and getting just every wire and uh, tube in them inserted just so they can stay alive and have a horrible, sad, lonely death. But With that being said, I am a very, very big proponent on having people make their decision when they're ready to go, or at least having their family do it. However, whenever, I think that this is a really good thing. Yeah, I do too. I think that medical professionals who deal with with patients who are dying, so people working at the bedside who have to see terminally ill patients and actually watch the decline over periods of sometimes months sometimes years um, and weeks, um, and some of them don't have family at the bedside. It's pretty rare to come across a medical professional who works in that capacity who isn't for this. Yes. For dying with dignity, because it's just, it's scary. And I think that most of us can look at, everybody in the entire world has at least one thing in common, and that's that we're all going to die at some point. And if you have to watch someone die who is having to fight and be in pain and suffer um, struggling for breath and uh, just is absolutely miserable it's kind of hard to be okay with that and to not you know because it it forces you as you see these things happening it forces you to sort of deal with it I think sometimes people who aren't forced to deal with it maybe they they just don't think about it you know there's a lot of issues like that if you don't if you're not forced you may think you have a belief or you you may think you stand on one side of an issue but because you're not really forced to to deal with it you're not really looking up all the information and getting becoming really informed so that you can truly have a good opinion about it yeah have you ever worked as a hospice nurse no no, but no, but you're right. Uh, and for those people who haven't or those people who don't need to deal with this stuff over and over again, you have to understand, especially when people are in the hospital, they come in if you're 89, 90 years old, even in the triple digits, right? And if mm-hmm. they're not a DNR and they're not a DNI and they they want to continue going life, moving life forward, you know, they have pneumonia, they have broken ribs, they're in excruciating pain. Now you get and like it's just it's 
the a really horrible, horrible way to end your life. Where if you just had the option to just let it go, you can, you know, I don't know. It's it's a it's a very tough decision. But New Jersey making the decision to uh, have patience and human beings make that decision for themselves, I think, is a huge step forward. I think it is too. It's definitely controversial. I I was on another podcast with Jamie called First Do No Harm, and we talked about the physician-assisted suicide on her mm. podcast. So, and this is actually dealing with physician-assisted suicide. It's not just comfort measures. It's not just changing your you know your code status to a DNR, um, and accepting the fact that okay, we're not going to do any more heroic measures. We're going to just let nature take its course and um, maybe give some medicine like morphine or Dilaudid or something like that to sort of help them be comfortable while nature sort of takes its course. That's comfort measures. And that's something that's done everywhere, everywhere. As as far as I know, this is actually what's going on in New Jersey. They're saying that terminally ill adults will be able to decide when they want to to die yeah. um, if they've been diagnosed with terminal illness. So it's a little different and it's definitely controversial. And a lot of people don't agree with it, you know, because you could have some young person diagnosed with a disease that is going to take their life. Yeah. And, and we're talking about literally injecting medication into the patient that causes their death it's different than allowing them to die yeah no um and this law for this law it is required that a psychiatrist or psychologist um clears the patient that they're in the right mind that they can make those kind of decisions that Mm -hmm. it's not a suicide attempt that it's not someone who's confused or under the influence that is making the decision a psychiatrist or psychologist needs to make the decision to say they are good and they're in the right state of mind because like tina says it's not letting god do his thing or mother earth or whatever you believe happen it's a doctor it's another human being killing killing assisting suicide Mm -hmm. right you know once this happens once this goes into effect or i guess i guess it's gone into effect because it said it was it would start thursday has it gone into effect yet i'm let's see this is on july 28th yeah so oh, that's today oh this just came out <laughs> yeah, yeah you're right on it girl yes i, I made the video last <laughs> you already night. did a show on it and it just came out <laughs> I, I did i did i did the uh, I, I did the video last night so yes it, this is brand spanking new Wow. So I guess it will start this coming Thursday. Yeah, August 1st is when it starts. Okay. So what's going to be interesting to see is whether or not there are healthcare professionals who are willing to do this and will they be able to opt out of it? Is this something that, because if it goes against someone's conscience and they don't want to feel like they're killing someone, you know, and that's hard. Because physicians will, most of them will say, you know, the American Medical Association, they their stance is that physicians' responsibility is to save patients' lives, to heal, mm-hmm. not not to harm. So that's hard because once this goes into effect, then you have to fasi- you have to sign, uh, find physicians who are willing to do it. Yeah. No, uh, when, the only other time I've seen anything like this is when during my clinicals as a nursing student during L&D, there was a couple of nurses that like signed a paper at the hospital saying that they will not participate in any abortions. And oh. I, it's like kind of the same thing. But okay. I, 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 like you said earlier, especially the nurses and the healthcare providers that work in hospice that see this often, a lot of them are pro physician-assisted suicide. So I don't know if it's going to be an issue. I hope, I really hope it's not an issue finding healthcare providers and finding doctors to okay this. Yes, I I think that it probably is, well, it may be hard because people may not want, even if in your mind you, you're you for it because you don't want to see people suffer, it may be hard to be the one to actually carry out, you know. Yeah, because final deed. Yeah, we do have some nurses that are that have a difficult time, especially new nurses that don't really, you know, have a good understanding that haven't been through it a few times. Once you've been through, I mean, this is this sounds so weird for me to say, but once you've been through several deaths 
and you've seen comfort care patients pass on and or you see patients who aren't comfort care but who were terminally ill pass on and you've seen the two then it becomes easier to say okay i definitely think this way is better for for people i can't it's horrible it's horrible for the family it's horrible for the the patient it's, it's horrible for the staff it's traumatic to watch someone yes. suffer really and is. so I, I think once you've been through that it's easier to say oh i, I definitely will give this morphine when you're new it's a little oh, shocking. Man. Is it a little shock? It was do you, were you a little shocked if you were like, wait, what am I doing? I, I can't. If this is a lot of medicine, you think you're killing them. You're not. No, but no, you're not. At, for, you know, you're just new and you don't understand. But it's, it's you're not killing them. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, so I, I've yet to not, like say knock on wood, but I've yet to be giving patients any like heavy narcotics, even on their way out, just to ease their breathing or like morphine for breathing or morphine for pain or mm-hmm. whatever the situation is. Delauded. I luckily haven't done too much of that, and I have never had a patient pass away during my shift after giving a medication like that. Mm -hmm. So I haven't dealt with it, but I've seen a whole lot of patients pass away. But going back to this story, New Jersey is going to be the seventh or eighth, I think seventh state to get this done. So Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, there's a few. Yeah, there's a few other states. I know California. I don't know all of them, but I know California is one of them. Oregon. Um, Oh, there you go. There you go. So there's a few other states that uh, have physician already in law that uh, physician assisted suicide mm-hmm. is a thing. You know, whenever Jamie and I did the the episode on, of on her podcast about physician assisted suicide, I did a little bit of research before the her the episode just to kind of get my mind around you know the whole the whole topic and sort of know what's going on in that world because I it's not something that I've def- necessarily looked at you know yeah and what. One thing that I found was that the since it started, I guess maybe what fifteen twenty years ago, since yeah. the Oregon I think was the first state. Everyone said, "Oh, this is going to be a slippery slope. It's you're going to have all these people lining up to do this. It's going to be. <laughs> it's really not. It's not been it's an not, issue. There haven't really not. been that many people that opt for this because it's yeah. pretty drastic." It, no, it really is. And and that, that key like uh, note in the bill that says that you have to have a psychologist or a psychiatrist mm-hmm. okay the patient is yeah. super important because you never you don't want it to be a situation where it can be a slippery slope. But Tina, are you, are you for this? Like, are, are you okay with this? Is this something that you're okay with that would you'd be okay with happening in Tennessee? Well, yes. And the, the reason that I am is I where I stand, where I tend to stand on political issues in general whether it's gay rights or physician assisted suicide or I, my brain is failing me right now because I'm on vacation at the beach and it's, <laughs> it's taking a vacation too but there you know there's certain issues that I feel like people have the right to choose for themselves and you don't have the right I don't feel like we have the right to impose our beliefs on other people so yes. I mean unless for some reason it is impacting someone else's rights. I mean, I don't I, I don't think that we should be allowed to have beliefs that somehow infringe on other people's freedoms, of course. Exactly. Yeah. I'm but as you. long as, you know, we're not in some weird religious have some weird like religious belief that says, you know, women can't drive cars or something like that or I don't know, it's okay to I don't know, just do something illegal or that, that would hurt yeah. someone then if it doesn't infringe on someone else's freedoms, you should be allowed to have your own belief. I don't really understand why people want to control other people. It's like, it's none of, I feel like it's none of your business. That's my, I mean, that's just me. I'm like, it's none of your business. It's like, if they uh, yeah, want yeah. to do that, it's up to them. And you don't, if you want to believe that it's wrong, then don't do it. That's, that's yes. just me. I, I'm with you. I'm with you, Tina. I'm with you. Two peas in the pod here. <laughs> I like it. So that's kind of our in the news story. It's a, it's kind of a, a touchy uh, subject, and I'm wondering what people are going to think about it because I haven't talked about it on Good Nurse Bad Nurse before, and I do tend to sort of steer away from political topics just because it's not a political show. You know, it's more of yes. You know, talking about healthcare professionals and our roles, and 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 you know, just talking about true crime and and that sort of thing and 
I don't really get into the politics and what I believe. I have some strong beliefs, but I just don't feel like this is, I just didn't choose to make this podcast oh. about that. Yes. Um, so I will be curious to see what people have to say. If you have anything to, that you want to say to me, um, and if, if I say something that you disagree with, my I, I love to talk to people um, who think differently than I do. So, and the reason is because my mind tends to be pretty open. Someone once said to me, you know, you don't want to leave your mind so open that your brains fall out. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, I really sh- like that. I like well, that. Because I mean, I, I guess what they meant was, you know, if you if you just stay open to absolutely everything, you never have any convictions, you never right. go, yeah. okay, this is where I'm landing. I believe this way. So I you know, I wouldn't say I'm totally open. Like I do have beliefs, but I'm. I would also say that if you if, if you want to have a conversation with me and you have some good evidence that would make me change my mind, I'm always open I mean, open to changing my mind. So, yeah, I just a quick shout out to that uh, that the uh, I don't know if it was the nursing students or someone that mentioned when we did a story and we were talking about uh, psych nurses mm-hmm. and they told you about something and they they <laughs> messaged you and then you told me about it. I yeah yeah you really do have an open mind and you you love to get the responses from people so it's good. Yeah sure absolutely. So anyway, I guess we can shift gears and start talking about our occupational therapist. That was kind of, I guess, a bad occupational, not a necessarily a bad occupational therapist, but she's an occupational therapist who maybe did something bad. And that's yeah. kind of what we do. We do those stories here, exactly. you know, and it's not always tied to the job. So this is about a lady by the name of Haley Gilligan. She is 30 years old. Um, she's an occupational therapist from Nevada City, California. And just to talk a little bit about what occupational therapists do. Oh, yes. So they, they help people. They're, it's very closely tied to physical therapy. In fact, at, at the hospital, a lot of times we will just lump them together and say PTOT, PTOT, PTOT. Um, <laughs> and if a patient is asking for, which is very rare, but if they're asking for physical therapy, you know, or usually it's a family member, we need physical therapy to come. Nobody's seen them, that sort of thing. If there's an occupational therapist on the floor and for whatever reason, PT is not there, they'll come and see them too. And they sometimes do a lot of the same things because they're helping them get out of the bed and get up to, to the chair, helping them put their tray in front of them, pick up their fork, you know, do those those types of things. They work with people who are injured, who are sick. Maybe they've had a stroke and they're not able to use their extremities. Um, and they just help them figure out how to get back to maybe a new normal and how to do everyday activities. Yeah. So o- OTs, I, I don't know. I feel like OTs are sneaky, sneaky. I mean, they get, they get <laughs> anything and everything done that that yes. needs to be done. Um, but when I when I did talk to um, the, when I do talk to the OTs, the way they tell me that they differentiate from PT is that mm-hmm. say they say that PT works with the huge muscle groups, and the PT tries to get the big huge um, movements in the body going. Um, mm-hmm. So like patients needing to walk, PT will help that. Patients needing to stand up, needing to drive. But um, OT does a lot more of the fine motor skills of the, like the little itty bitty things that you take advantage of every day. But when you have a stroke, when you are injured, when you are in the hospital for long periods of time, you you might lose that those abilities. And that's where OT comes along. But they really do help with a little bit of everything. I see. I'll, you know, I, I never actually thought about that. I mean, it makes sense because of the things, the types of things that they do. Yeah. So that's a perfect way of differentiating between the two professions. And it's a, it's a very important profession. When I went to look for, you know, later after we talk about Haley Gilligan, we're going to talk about good occupational therapists. It, it actually is an easy finding, you know, a specific story about occupational therapists, maybe because if, if someone did maybe an amazing thing, a heroic type thing, the media probably wouldn't latch on to the fact that they were an occupational therapist the way that they would a doctor, a nurse, nurse. you know, that sort of thing. So what you tend to find are 
stories of just everyday things happening, like someone having a stroke and them helping them get back to normal. Exactly. So they are, most of them are working uh, with a master's degree. They are, you know, that is the level of education that's usually required for, for occupational therapists is a master's degree. Their median pay I saw from 2018 was 84270 per year or $40 per hour. I'd imagine that's different depending on the region that you're in and what yep. the cost of living and all of that is. So that's occupational therapists just to sort of give people an idea in case it's a little bit of a, a mysterious type of a of an occupation. So to get back to Haley. Oh, um, Haley. Oh, Haley. Haley. <laughs> is an occupational therapist and so on the morning of october the 20th 2018 that was just last year it's not even been a year ago that this happened yeah this story is fresh this is a fresh one tina yeah it's very fresh she was planning on going to disneyland with her family you know she lives in california so they were going to go to disney disneyland for the day she had been texting with them about going so it just from looking at that, you would think everything seems to be fine. If you're texting with your family yeah. about going to Disneyland, you know, making plans. I mean, that's, a, that's a good start to a story. Right. Yeah. Things sh- seem like they should be good. But just three days before, she had purchased a 38 caliber Ruger pistol. Oof. And so there's two things, you know, her getting ready to go to Disneyland with her family this morning and then purchasing that, that pistol. They become important because you're going to be thinking about that when you try to figure out you know did she do it mm -hmm. yeah right or what the motivation was what the intentions were the state of mind you know what in the world is going on because it seems to it seems a little bit odd to me and we'll talk about why it seems to line up pretty um yeah. coincidentally to say the mm-hmm. least right oh, yeah. right <laughs> right um so, uh, wait, mm-hmm. wait before we keep go on did you know what a, do, do you know what a ruger ruger pistol is <laughs> or is that just a type of pit like did you is that just what was part of the story because i had to google it um but it just it looks like a regular pistol i just i know nothing about guns so i, was I little... don't either I, I know how to say it that's all okay, i know good, i just good, read okay. it off the page <laughs> Okay, good. I literally copied and pasted that out of <laughs> Oh, no, no. Because the way you said it was, was you said it so well. I was like, oh, she must know. But I had to Google it. <laughs> hey, you know, we get nurses get good at acting like we know stuff. You know, when no. <laughs> patients and family members ask us stuff and you just kind of pull stuff out of your butt to just be like, oh, I'm sorry. Some, I think I heard somebody calling my name. I'll be right back. And then you go Google it. <laughs> you got to do it. You have to. You have to. <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah, I don't know anything about guns at all but both of those details will become important so we'll kind of keep that in the back of our minds for later on in the story now haley is from a very strict family Mm -hmm. there in california and i don't even know i didn't look this up usually i look up where the region where where it is i didn't look up where nevada city is in california so i don't know if it's northern california i want i feel like it's probably northern california and the reason i say that is that regionally what i tend to find just from the honestly from doing these stories because i've never been but it usually northern california is more conservative and southern california is usually a little more liberal that's what i've yep that's been my experience yep 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 but she did come from a very strict family they didn't believe in couples cohabitating before marriage and so she had been in this kind of on again off again relationship with a man by the name of Jamie Kenseth. And it causes a lot of confusion early on in this whole story because Haley was actually keeping the fact that they had been living together from her parents because... Right. Yeah, because it's from a super traditional family, and like right. I, I don't know. I really feel bad for these kind. Of, I'm not I'm these kind of people. I'm just saying, I hate when people have to keep huge secrets from families and loved yeah. ones. Right. So it really, it really, I, I feel bad for her. I really feel bad for her. Yeah. But um, yeah, those uh sympathetic feelings disappear fairly quickly. Uh, we'll go. We'll wait. I'll wait. I'll wait. <laughs> I'll wait. I'll wait. Oh, you guys know how Q is. Uh, yes. He, he, he lands firmly on one side early on in these stories. Yes. <laughs> so around 7 o'clock that morning, October 20th, Haley called 911. 
and she said that her ex-boyfriend came over that morning, forced himself into the house, um, and it was actually an apartment, um, a two-story apartment, but he forced himself in, you know, they got into an argument. She, when she called 911, she called him an intruder. Mm-hmm. You know, she said, I had an intruder in my home, my ex-boyfriend, he, he broke into my house, and you know, she made it seem like he broke in, that he was, you know, that's a little different than he came over and then while he was in the house got an argument it's like he deliberately broke into the house and that's what she said when she called 911 she said that she shot him in self defense and and of course in on in the 911 recording she said i think he's dead yeah yeah so when the police arrive they get there about 706 so very quickly they arrive and he, the officer had a body cam on him and so it recorded the whole interaction with her telling what happened when he first arrived and she said that her ex-boyfriend had gotten there sometime between 6 and 10 in the morning and that they got in an argument she said he forced his way into the home and they refused to leave even though she kept telling him to leave and she said that he pushed she pushed past him so he i guess forced his way into the home and they're arguing and somehow he must have gotten between her and the stairs because she said she pushed back past him to go upstairs to her bedroom and then while she's up there she was threatening to him you know i'm going to call the police you need to leave i'm going to call the police yeah so with all mm-hmm. of this happening right in the beginning i the, so the reason I mentioned the fact that I don't like it when people have to hide huge parts because I didn't I didn't get a sense of what this relationship was like or the you know the ins and outs of the relationships how long you know were they arguing did people see them arguing like like you know like all of the back stuff that we usually get for the other people right. but because it was a hidden relationship because she was not supposed to be in that kind of relationship we didn't get much of that. So it's super, super right. hard to say. And like, you never want to say that she's just lying and there wasn't an, uh, there wasn't an argument. They weren't fighting a- any of these things. Um, mm-hmm. So it's really, really hard to just make a judgment. But I do have to say it's super up in the air. And because he's dead, you don't get his side of he said, she said. You just get her side of it. Yeah, you do. You just get that one side. So it's it's a little bit her take on it her story what she says happened is when she pushed past him and then went upstairs she yelled down to him you know you, you need to leave you need to leave i'm going to call the police but then she heard him rummaging through drawers and then she went and got her gun that she had bought three days before and she said that when she heard him rummaging and I guess she felt like she needed to show him she was serious like look you need to leave and this was her way of show I guess showing him the gun was like you really do need to leave I mean business right right she wanted to scare him and she said she didn't intend to use it she just was kind of using it to be firm about get out of my apartment yeah um, she said he had never actually threatened her with a weapon, but that he had thrown objects at her. And one time he had slapped her on the back, like with the back of his, like backhanded her. Um, yeah. So th- this is where this is where I start to lose hope in my dear friend Haley, just because, uh, um, <laughs> because just just because she passes by him she goes up to sis and if you even go by her story because that's all we have to go on when you hear someone rummaging around in drawers unless you know for a fact that you have like a machete or another gun downstairs in the drawer your first thing isn't let me go get a gun even if she is afraid of her life even if she is nervous she said that she said that she would call the cops I would say call the cops before any of this happens I would Mm -hmm. say go like lock yourself in the bedroom and make sure someone's there go yell and scream for the neighbors to come over but for the first thing you do is to grab a gun to show i'm saying like that's if it's not premeditated that's a that's a crazy zero to 60 jump right Right. that's a huge jump from i feel like he needs to leave to now i need to pull out my pistol exactly so then she's she goes downstairs 
It doesn't say that there's a phone upstairs, but it's. I mean, it's maybe 2018. No, 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 no. Tina, she has a phone in her back pocket. It's this is last <laughs> year. This is not 1904. She has right. a cell phone. <laughs> True. True. So she it says she goes back downstairs. She's got the gun in her hand. It says she's prepared to call 911. What are you doing to prepare? I'm not sure. <laughs> a cutting carrots. I don't know. So she saw, sees him standing next to the couch. And she said that he reached for something and then turned toward her. So maybe his back was to her when she initially came down the stairs and said that she felt like she saw him reaching for something, turned around toward her. She thought he was going to hit her or cut her with something, whatever it was that she thought he had. So she said she just instinctively shot him. And... She said that she was standing near the bottom of the staircase four or five feet away from where he was standing, and you know he was by the couch. It struck him on the right side of the back of his head, and then... That was her story, okay? Yeah, so... That was like, her account of what happened. And again, and again, like... I never want to downplay her being afraid because I'm not like these other like libs, like, you know, pie in the sky thinking like uh, women have nothing to be afraid of because women actually do have something to be afraid of. There is a power dynamic when you are in those relationships. I would say for average, for the vast majority of human beings, when you have a man and a woman next to each other, the man has is physically stronger. Right. So I, sure. I don't want to say. Even I don't want to say even for a second that there isn't something she should have been afraid of, but because she was afraid, because she, even the way that she describes the situation, there isn't, I, I don't think you can, I don't think in a court of law, I don't think any normal human being can say in like the right like state of mind saying that the right action for someone that is standing that far away from you is to shoot them. I, I don't know, Tina, I feel like that it's, it's just too much for me to say. It's, there's no bruises, there's no cuts, there's nothing that we have to go off of to say that she was in physical danger, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's, well, the it's thing hard. Is, yeah, and he, if, if her story is true and he was four to five feet away, he has a, a knife. Oh, I mean, it's not like he has a gun, so... right. Uh, it's but, a little... But, even, there, even that story, and that's her story. Exactly. That's her but, account. So... As far as a story goes, I'm not sure it was the best one. If she, if this is something that if this is something she sort of concocted to be her version of the events, yeah, no, and I'm saying still, e- even even if he had like a knife in his hand, then I'd be all for her. I'd I'd, I'd honestly, to honest to God, if he had like a knife in his hand, like a like a switchblade or something, I'd be like, this is domestic violence. She protected herself. I'm with her. But mm-hmm. there was nothing. There was nothing. I uh, I, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. I agree. Well, when the when they got there, when the officers got there, you know, after she called, what they saw was a large blood stain on one end of the the couch in the living room. Then there was a trail of blood that went to the front door um, entryway, and that's where his body his body was like by the front door. So it's like the blood was there at the couch, and then it was as if his body had been dragged from that spot over to the front door which mm. is really odd so someone had moved his body clearly and she told the police officers that he had never been in her apartment before she changed that later because then she said that he had been there eight or nine times and I kind of get it if she is in this weird dynamic with her family where she doesn't want to admit, even if all of this was true, how the death happened, I could see where she is would be afraid. Yeah. If she admitted that he was living there, that or, her parents would find out. Oh, yeah. Which is crazy to think all of this is going on and you're worried <laughs> about your parents finding out that you're, you just killed your, you know, uh, Right? Just, yeah. yeah. I mean, so that, that definitely is like the last thing that should be on your mind. But I like yeah. eight or nine times versus this is the first time him coming over. Like, I feel like at this point she's trying to convolute and put the story together and trying to get it right. So that is definitely a fact that does not lean towards her being innocent. Yeah, that just all of the inconsistencies. Exactly. So 
her account definitely did not match up with his wound, which was actually on his upper forehead at his hairline. And they said there was tattooing or gunpowder uh, stippling that was visible around the wound that indicated that it was delivered at close range. Now, I've, I've done enough of these stories to kind of understand what that means. <laughs> right. Yeah. Basically, the gun was right up next up against to him. Yeah. his forehead. Yeah. And it wasn't from five or six feet away or whatever she said. Exactly. Yeah, because if there's gunpowder, that means that, yeah, because it just has to be super close. It has to be really close to the actual gun where the bullet is getting fired from. Right. The tattooing of the gunpowder residue yep. on the on his forehead would not have happened if it was four to five feet away. And they didn't find a weapon. They didn't find anything that could have been any kind of improvised weapon. Nothing that should have made her feel like her life was in danger, in danger. anywhere near his body. <laughs> They couldn't find this shell casing, you know, that from the where the gun had been fired, could could not find the shell casing in the room. Then they go upstairs in the bedroom and they find a trash bag that had this shell casing, a cell phone, a charger, male and fem- female rings, a pair of men's slippers, TV remotes and marijuana par- paraphernalia. And then there was another trash bag stashed under the bed that had a bloodstained bed pillow. And so... Yeah, this is this is a lot of preparing. <laughs> I don't know if she was trying to clean up for the cops so she had everything ready to give them, but this is not something that you do if it was an accident, if you're freaking out. Why do you have all of his stuff in a plastic trash bag upstairs in your room if all of this t- was taken, um, happened downstairs, right? Why do you have, like, why, why? And the marijuana doesn't help. Oh, but this is in California, but uh, marijuana is legal in California, so that's right. that's whatever, right? That's yeah. It has nothing to do with it, but still all of his stuff in a trash bag and then the huge problem here the big problem is the blood-stained pillow right oh yeah that's definitely why would you why would you do that if this exactly exactly they they continue searching they find blood spattered duffel bag Mm -hmm. with his wallet is in there his cell phone they find a four drawer dresser filled with his uh, men's clothing i guess they don't know for sure it's his but there's men's clothing in there there's a suitcase under the bed that had ammunition, a blood, uh, a gun cleaning kit, and pink bloodstained sweatpants. And they found the alleged murder weapon on top of a dresser. So I, it, it, this is not looking good. I mean, if it, if you were going to try to, and, and the way I, I usually try to do this is, is there any possible way I could paint a scenario that would in any way give this person the benefit of the doubt and sometimes it gets pretty ridiculous trying to do that with some of these stories and this one to me is very ridiculous to think that she accidentally she was afraid for her life to the point that she tried to scare him with a gun and then just without realizing what she was doing accidentally shot him took her pants off somehow got blood spatter on a duffel bag took that upstairs grabbed up all of his stuff put it under, i mean what it exactly no you're right tina you're right because I, I do exactly what you're doing right i try to put myself in a person and like i want to be the worst person in the world like i'm trying to see i mean i'm trying to give i'm trying to be the best person in the world give them all the benefit of the doubt if yeah. this person was scared right the timeline doesn't make sense. The, the Where the items are don't make sense. It doesn't match up to the story she told. Like, none of this makes sense. And the only reason it wouldn't make sense if it's because they were lying. And if they were lying, it's because they did it out of cold-blooded, premeditated murder, which is obviously going to put her in jail, right? So... I'm with you in trying to figure out a situation where their stories make sense. And it Mm -hmm. just doesn't. Hers just doesn't. And it doesn't seem like she planned too much to it, too. I feel like I don't. these are just simple mistakes that shouldn't Mm -hmm. happen if you try to get away with murder. It's just these things shouldn't happen. These things should not happen. No. And what's really odd is for her to tell the police that they were that he was her ex-boyfriend when she had text messages on her cell phone that basically showed they ha- they were still in an ongoing relationship because mm-hmm. you know there were these messages that were i don't know just kind of like i love you and that sort of thing so what exactly 
what why would you I, I don't know how someone smart enough to have a master's degree and be an occupational therapist could not understand that the police can look at your text messages, text messages. and know like you can't lie to them about stuff <laughs> right I like people you it. should know this you should know this at this point but at the same time like she also has his clothing in the house and she in the beginning t- said that she, he doesn't live there right that I was know, the first so, so like things. a lot it's of the stuff like, yeah go ahead it's almost like she f- thought she could say all of this stuff to them and they were just gonna go oh Okay, okay, if that's right. how it went, and then just go on <laughs> off and not, never look at anything. I Sometimes I swear, I don't understand. It's people. ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And and then, and like the cherry on top of all this, I know you told them to remember about the gun. The yeah. gun was bought three days prior to this day, right? Three yep. days prior. It, that is so, like, after all of these inconsistencies, to remember the fact that she bought this gun three days ago, mm-hmm. for me, I was like, you know, yeah, you know, it, it's... It's done. It's done. She did it. Yeah. Well, think about this. There, there is a, there's a timeline here that, if you really think about it, is almost like a riddle that will blow your mind. Like I'm just like, how <laughs> does this even work? So at 6:53 a.m. that morning, she texted her sister saying, "Okay, I'm running late, so I might be in the shower. Text me when you're five minutes away." 6.53, the police were there at 7.06. That's How? insane. What? What is That's the, insane. I, I, that blew my mind when I read that. I was like, is, there, is it possible that this isn't right? Because she nine minutes after she sent that text, she talked with her sister for three minutes. How is this timeline working out at all? I don't understand. <laughs> I'm so confused. Because the next call she made was to 911. Mm-hmm. And that's when she said, that she shot him 20 minutes earlier. What? (laughs) Right? Because now you're trying to put all this together and it just doesn't make any sense. Is she texting her sister after he was dead? That's what was killing me. I was like, did she seriously just text her sister and act like nothing was going on? Nothing. And again, and again, it really doesn't make any sense because... no. If the person was dead, and if the cops are on their way, I mean, it it, it real like she has to be so like, it has to be so crazy that she killed the person and not cared even a single bit to pretend to her sister like just psychopathic behavior, mental status at this level. You go from like she was scared for her life to thinking she's a psychopath when you try to figure out this timeline. Because if she, it's not like anyone is. She's not denying that she shot him. No one is. That's yeah. not being disputed. We know the police got there at 7.06. We know she texted her at 6.56. So, and we know she had a phone, a three-minute phone conversation. What does her sister think happened? Because her That's sister has to be thinking, you. he was already dead. You already shot him. Even if your story is true and you shot him out of self-defense because you were afraid for your life, he was dead when you texted me. What were you... What? Why did you do that? I don't get it. I just don't get this story at all. Yeah, no, it's all over the place. It really is all over the place. It's crazy. So at the trial, the DA submitted, or they they put forth, of course, all of this evidence that showed that Kenseth had been living there the whole time, that he had prescription medications there with his name on the label, there was obviously the dresser full of his clothing. There was a cat there with microchip. Come on. <laughs> you can't get away from those microchips. <laughs> My daggum dog gets out of our yard. We have we have our dogs have um a electric fence with like the little collar. Oh yes, so yes, yes, yes. The yes. thing works. It's a amazing. It's like a miracle. It's just amazing. They just stay in the yard and it's never a problem. That's awesome. Until the batteries die. And we didn't oh, notice. Oh no. And Are Charlie. You well, Charlie's a little stinker and so he must just we figure he must just be like, "Huh, I kind of got close to there and I didn't hear any beeping." And so <laughs> he just keeps moving over and finally he must just be like, "Oh my goodness, I'm free." And it takes off. And so what happens? We're like, where's Charlie? <laughs> He's not oh out there. Where we go to the pound, <laughs> or they call us. Charlie spent the night in, you know, lock up a couple of times. <laughs> 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 spent the night in the tank a few times. 
<laughs> Yo, Charlie, wait, what kind of, I had no idea you had a dog, Tina. Yeah. What kind of dog do you have? He's pity. He's a pity. Oh my goodness. That's oh I love it though. Charlie, he's yeah. he's he's a he's a good one, huh? He's a mess. Sneaky, he was, sneaky. He's very sneaky. So um oh, wow. yeah, those microchips though, whenever he gets out, we all we're always like, somebody is gonna because they'll either take him to the vet, scan him, and they'll be like, Oh, yeah, they'll call us. Exactly. So yeah, you can't get away from that. So No, you can't. So there he obviously was living there. He's wanting a mur- uh, the DA is wanting a murder conviction for her. He's looking at all this evidence and he's saying this adds up to murder to me and that's I want a murder conviction. He was looking for felony charges for the mm-hmm. negligent discharge of a firearm and also the charges that he was putting forth show were were basically stating that she shot him willfully with malice aforethought. So basically she she knew exactly what she was doing and she knew before she did it she planned it you know exactly um they also said that there were special circumstances of lying in wait and that's very important because lying in wait means that the person that is accused of committing the murder they planned it out waited for the right time and then used the element of surprise to get the upper hand over them and so that makes it you know even worse in the eyes of the law and so mm-hmm. it then because of that special circumstance will make it a first degree murder charge and it's a capital offense and it's punishable by the death penalty or life in prison either one's not going to be good for our occupational therapist <laughs> yeah no um yeah so like and that's uh, yeah i think the, the the gun three days before makes the lying in wait really yes. right so it's like you said, but why earlier, was she planning a Disney trip? That's what I can't figure out. I and exactly, I don't understand why the like everything was happening in that one day, and I don't know why she decided that was. The, it just doesn't make any sense. It really mm-hmm. doesn't. Make, the entire story doesn't make any sense. But like like you said earlier, everyone knows that she shot him, and the whole question is whether right. it's self defense or was it premeditated or whatever the situation is, and. With all these facts, with him living there, with all the lies, with everything, with all the inconsistencies, mm-hmm. definitely seems premeditated. She never told the truth about anything. I, you can't, you can't feel bad for her, even if you wanted to. She's this is just bad, bad news. Bad occupational therapist. I know it. And now he did. The DA was not going to be seeking the death penalty, but he was seeking life in prison, and she knew she was facing life in prison without the possibility possibility of parole so she made a plea deal that uh, would avoid the murder conviction and so she pled no contest to voluntary manslaughter with an enhancement for unlawful discharge of a firearm and so she's now serving a 13-year prison sentence because of that yeah yeah so she'll be out i think she'll be out hopefully she gets um some uh um, help or she, uh, whatever happens, she in prison she learns a lesson. But she'll definitely be out because thirteen years yeah. is sounds long, but isn't that long? No, not for a thirty year old. So yeah, exactly. she's going to get to go go free. And his family, I Won't. guess the way they maybe looked at it was at least there's some closure there. At least there's some punishment, and they run the risk of a jury not giving her any conviction at all, and her not serving any time yeah so that's i guess why the da offered her that and i say this this. and i say this every time we do stories together even like like these crazy very like heavy stories that are very violent and very like messy i would always rather knowing who committed the crime and having them be in prison even if it's not for life even whatever it's just mm-hmm. the closure of knowing what happened and right. knowing that the person that did whatever happened is serving some time is just so much better than no one knows if the doctor finally did it no one knows if the nurse did it um so we do know who did it and she is serving time which even someone being totally the third party, just looking at this from afar, makes me feel better. I don't want to pretend I know what it feels like to have someone lost or killed in a family. So, But I would say, me um, personally, I like knowing the person who did it is serving time. Right. 
And I don't know if she'll ever be able to practice as an occupational therapist or not. I, who knows? Uh, yeah, I have no that idea is what the that, rules that is, are about that. But. <laughs> right? It's <laughs> a great question. But do you remember the story that we did that there was a doctor that was practicing or did education in jail? Like he was yes, serving was time. Yeah, I was like, Dude, that makes what no in the sense. World? He's like, I was being a doctor in jail, okay? And they were like, Oh, okay. Well, then oh, in that okay. case, here's your you, doctor your license. license back. <laughs> but that was a little while. That was also a long time ago. That was not recent. But at the same yeah, time, true. for someone who is, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. I don't know what the law is about getting your license back after yeah. you have a felony. But yeah. Yeah, it may be hard to get a job. Even if you even if you could get your license back, it may be hard to get a job. That Most felony. definitely. Yep. <laughs> so that was our bad occupational therapist. And I have to say, it it wasn't easy to find an occupational therapist bad story or good story just because it's not an occupation that's talked about a lot. You know, it's yep. not one. But it should be. I feel like it should be celebrated and they should people should understand the wonderful, amazing things that they do. So I found this website, or actually it's just The Guardian, um, that, but they did like a special article on occupational therapists and they listed de- several different people whose lives were changed by occupational therapists. So I thought that was kind of neat and we could maybe like look at these different little stories just to yes. sort of give people an idea of what they do and the impact that they can have on people and patients. This one guy, Martin Benetto, he was um, 52. He says in December of 2010, he had to go to the hospital. He had a brain hemorrhage. He was in there for two weeks. And he said that he was hoping he would be ready to go back to work. But then when his occupational therapist came to interview him, he fell asleep while she was talking to him. So then she gave him tools to stop the fatigue setting in so that just 10 or 15 minutes of meditation he said even in a noisy room would help him get his energy back so that he's ready to go again so i think that was i thought that was kind of cool i think that's really cool and the fact that they use meditation to help him get energy back is Mm -hmm. super cool because the very and when i say very few i mean very few times i've ever tried meditation it makes me so much more tired than it does give me actual energy so (laughs) (laughs) exactly i'm just ready to pass out so i think it's really i I love it i love it it's all of these little tricks that help people get to function the way they would have functioned pre procedure operation injury whatever the situation is that's what ot's do and i like it i love it i do too Michael Kerr, who was 33, said that he was on on holiday. This was in <laughs> this is from London. So in America, <laughs> in America, we say vacation. we say he was on vacation. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so he was. Uh, it's a. It says that 16 years ago he dived into a swimming pool, not realizing it was the shallow end. It's so sad how often oh, this happens. All the time. It's it really does terrible. happen all the time. Yeah. Oh my goodness! I just wish it, those warnings on the pool just are not enough it's just so scary but he hit his head on the bottom of the pool and broke his neck he spent 10 months in the hospital in glasgow and his he had occupational therapists helping him to get better and he said just learning to do things with the limited mobility that he had in his hands picking things up fastening buttons dressing himself and and those types of things that you really take that everybody takes for granted so he said before his accident, he was a very athletic person. He liked to be outside, outdoors, doing things. So that is really sad to think of somebody like that who's now become immobile or have, has you know limited mobility. And he said while he was at the unit, he was able to use hydro the hydrotherapy pool. And he could, in doing using the hydrotherapy uh, pool, he was able to participate in different sports, I guess. Exactly. And That's nice. It really is nice. And then, like, you have to remember that this uh, Mike, he was 33, so he was super young. So when he, like, said he likes sports, I, I was thinking in my head, like, he was pick up basketball, goes to the YMCA, likes to be athletic. Um, but it says at the end here that he went to the Paralympics in 2012. Yeah, well, he was, and he's 33 now. It was 16 years ago that he had this accident, so he was a lot younger than Oh, that. wow. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's crazy. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's just well, good for him, right? Just yeah. good for him. 
That's Absolutely, a huge yeah. turnaround. Huge turnaround. Exactly. He's he took up wheelchair rugby, competed in the 2012 Paralympics, like you said. And he said if it wasn't for occupational therapists, he would have never had the opportunity. He really gives them all the credit for that. Good for him. So the next one that we'll talk about is Joe Lavelle. He's 34 and his son, Tom. So he says that their uh, son, Tom, suffered a huge brain injury when he was born. And about 40% of the left side of his brain had been damaged. And they were told that he would find certain things very challenging, especially speech and high capacity functions and movement. So they knew that it was going to be a challenge from the very beginning. And he said that they met Ann Gordon, who manages the OT team at the Children's Hospital there in London. And when Tom was six months old, he said Tom wouldn't grab anything with his right hand. So she suggested using constant or constraint-induced movement therapy, which meant restricting his left hand, which would force him to use his right hand. And some of these things seem so simple, but have you ever asked, you know, like a physical therapist or an occupational therapist about something and they tell you something like that, that just seems like it should have been common sense, but it's these things just kind of come, they know all of this stuff. Yes. It's amazing. And they make a huge difference. They really do. So when... Yeah, when I used to work at the rehab hospital, we used to have, like, the OT team, they had, like, their own little, like, rehab section of the hospital where it was Mm -hmm. the entire gym with all of the stuff. And, like, the PT team, they had all of the regular things you would have, like a walker, a cane, a wheelchair. Right. But when you go to the OT side, they had all of these cool gadgets and just, like, this constraint-based therapy they had things where it would tie down your left arm. They had all of those eye patches that you would use on your um, stronger eye so you could use your weaker eye. They had the spoons with the big fat, you know what I'm talking about, like the grip, yes. the big fat grip, so it would right. be easier to, easier to eat. All of these different tools and things that you would like, you could makeshift them in like your garage, but like it was official and it helped. And like you said, it really does work. Oh, yeah, it's wonderful. So his right hand, they said, is still affected, but he can grab a ball with both hands. He can hold a cup and things that, of course, you know, we take for granted. And that's what they do. They help give people back those things that we normally take for granted. Um, It's not that big of a deal to other people, but for them, it's huge that he's able to do those things. And it's they they say that it's because of the, the occupational therapy team there. Um, that that he's able to do it because you know you can work with with your child or you you can try to do the best you can but if you don't know these little tricks or you know maybe something that you would struggle with for years you could have been you know you could have been doing differently yeah. if you just had that little little bit of information so I really just want to celebrate occupational therapists and of course you know we always have to tell our bad story but I, it's it's my way of sort of highlighting, you know, making it interesting, yes. telling like a little a little true crime story with it. But I, it's my way of also highlighting the occupation and letting everybody know that we appreciate them that as as a, an integral part of the healthcare team. They are. They're a huge part of the healthcare team. They're the people yeah. who get you on your feet. You know, we send you out of the hospital when you're just ready to get, like when you're just ready, like you're stable enough to be stable. Yeah. But OTPT, they really get you to back to normal, back to where you were prior to the yes. incident. So they're exactly. a huge part, huge, huge, huge part of the healthcare team. Well, I guess that's it for our occupational therapist episode. Not bad, huh? I I wouldn't say so. I think we got a few OOT good stories in. So you guys have a few goodies, good OTs to outbalance Haley and her craziness. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I guess we will uh, wrap this episode up and cue remind everybody where they can find you on oh your yes shows. cue the nurse on youtube and anywhere you listen to podcasts on instagram all the social just cue the letter and then the nurse um, you'll find me in all my exciting things so go look him up and then you can also find good nurse bad nurse on facebook at gmb and podcast and on instagram at good nurse bad nurse podcast and you can go to our website at good nurse bad nurse podcast.com And Q and I would also like to remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, (laughs) 
Be a good nurse. Yes. 